0: murder and deaths of Native children at residential schools has been covered up for many years. Last week in May of 2021, the world was informed of the discovery of 215 bodies of Indigenous children on the grounds of Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia. Stories about children dying and being killed were told for decades by survivors of these residential schools cries for justice and investigation of all residential school campuses are now being voiced. I want to re-air a show I did with Reverend Kevin Annett, who has been a champion for bringing to light these deaths for many years. The interview took place in February of 2012, almost 10 years ago. Remember, this is a 2012 interview. Listen and learn. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG, Portland, Maine. Today, we will be talking about genocide and the Native American Holocaust. We have a very special guest today, uh, Kevin Annett, and um, you might ask, who is Kevin Annett? And the answer to that question is, Kevin is a Canadian clergyman in his mid-50s. Kevin Annett has, for nearly 20 years, led the movement to bring a light and prosecute atrocities in Christian Indian residential schools and win justice for survivors. Expelled in 1995 from his former United Church of Canada for exposing murders in that church's Indian residential schools and persecuted and blacklisted for his efforts, Kevin is now an award-winning filmmaker, author, social activist, and public lecturer who works with victims of church violence and genocide all over the world. In 2009, he helped to establish the Five Nation International Tribunal ...into crimes of church and state, which is seeking to indict church and government leaders for crimes against humanity. Kevin is an adopted member of three aboriginal nations and holds master's degrees in political science and theology. He is the author of Unrepentant, Disrobing the Emperor, that was copyright 2011 and Hidden No Longer, Genocide in Canada, Past and Present, 2010 and is the co-producer of the documentary film Unrepentant, which won Best Documentary at the Los Angeles and New York Independent Film Festivals in 2006-07. He also hosts the popularly acclaimed public affairs blog radio program Hidden from History and is a consultant to numerous aboriginal and abuse survivors groups in North America and Europe. As a result of Kevin's tireless efforts on behalf of Native people, the Canadian government was forced to issue a public apology and reparations program concerning Indian residential schools in July of 2008. In giving him the name Eagle Strong Voice in 2007, Ojibwe leader Louis Daniels declared, Kevin Annett is doing what few of his people have done, and that is to speak about the crimes they committed against many of our nations and their children. He has earned a place forever in our hearts and history. He is a brave and prophetic man. I ask everyone to welcome him and heed his voice. So welcome Kevin. Thank you Donna. So first of all I'd like to uh, to start out by just having you give us a, a background of, of of your personal um, history.
1: Sure. I uh, In terms of everything we're talking about, it started for me 20 years ago this summer. I arrived with my young family on the west coast of Canada at a little town called Port Alberni. It was right in the heart of Vancouver Island. It was actually the site of the last kind of missionary invasion in the latter part of the 1800s. And I didn't know, when I got to Port Alberni, I didn't know any of the native people there. They were about a third of the population, but you didn't see any of them in in the churches or the stores or anything. It was a very divided, and still is a very divided community that way. And when I began to work, the very first week I went out and began to visit Native people, I heard a story uh, from a, a man who is isn't. our, you can see this in our film, on Unrepentant. He described how he, you know, I asked him uh, when we were sitting drinking tea, I asked him why there were no Native people in any of the churches, and he said very bluntly that his best friend had been killed in the local United Church school and buried in the hills behind, behind the school and that the white people all knew about that, and that's why they didn't like the Indians coming into their church, because basically they had a, an enormous guilty conscience. I heard those stories in literally every Native home I began to go into, and because I opened up my church and we had a food bank, we, I reached out a lot into the community. A lot of those people began coming to our church, and that's when these stories began to surface. Now, at that time in history, there was no acknowledgment of this at all in the white world, uh, the, the attitude of the church leaders when I began to share this stuff was, they've just got a grudge against us uh, for taking away their land they're making it all up. We never did any of those things. Uh, that went on for about two and a half years, and I summarily was fired one day when I found out that uh, the church had been making a lot of money selling off native land to its corporate benefactors, various logging and mining companies. I wrote a letter about that to the church, and I was thrown out. I was eventually uh, defrocked cost of a quarter of a million dollars to the church. I mean, it was pretty obvious that they were coming down quickly to to silence this stuff. But over the years that followed, um, because of the work we were doing, we forced the early court cases. um, Two years after I was fired, because of the work I was doing with the first people to ever sue the churches and government for these crimes, the first uh, lawsuit came in, uh, the court decision in the B.C. Supreme Court that said the churches and government were jointly liable for all of the wrongs that had happened in these schools. And these wrongs included a massive death rate. Uh, Over half the children who went into these so-called schools never came back. And I began to publish documents showing why that happened, because they were deliberately exposing kids to tuberculosis and smallpox. That was even in the handwriting of doctors describing how it happened. And so, you know, we began to surface all of this stuff, and over the last 15 years or more, uh, it's gotten to the point where the government and churches have had to acknowledge things, but they're still denying that there was an intent to, to, you know, displace and kill off a lot of natives. They're, they're still uh, pretty much absolving themselves for any responsibility for this. So, you know, it's been a really long haul, but uh, it's been gratifying to see at least a lot of this truth finally coming
0: out. Well, I, I understand, too, that, you know, you've, uh, there's been a lot of personal sacrifice in your life to pursue this, uh, including the loss of your wife and, you know, your family.
1: Yeah, that that did happen. Um When I got uh, the week, I I, it was a a secret removal. I mean, the the church officials. um, I I wrote a letter about that land deal, uh, about the selling off a house at native land to uh, one of the logging companies that was funding the United Church. And um, when I wrote a letter about that, they immediately began to have secret meetings with my church board, and they actually went to my wife at the time and told her that if they if she helped them, uh, she would and left me. Uh, they would help fund her divorce, which actually happened uh, about six months later. She left, you know, because of a lot of machinations and, and um, other things. They, she got custody of our two young daughters. So, yeah, there was a lot of personal loss, and I think one of the ways I survived it was beginning to meet people who had been through a similar, if not worse, loss in their lives, and they could see that I, I had paid a price. They, I think the trust level went up when I was thrown out of the church, uh, people who hadn't come to me before began to share all sorts of incredible stuff, uh, and I was really a sounding board for people all over the country who saw that you know finally somebody in the in the white culture really wanted to get to the heart of it and not just put it under the rug it, like tends to happen on this stuff.
0: Yeah, and you uh, the the church where you were initially assigned, where did you say that was?
1: It was um, Saint Andrew's United Church in Port Alberni, which is right in the center of Vancouver Island, right on the west coast canada
0: that there were uh, atrocities or whatever that happened in that residential school that was nearby
1: that's right that just about a mile down the road from where my church was was the original it was called the alberni residential school it was set up by the presbyterians but then they joined and formed the united church in 1925 and they ran that school right to the the late 1970s and according to documents and i found and people i spoke to uh children were dying there at a rate of about a third to half of the children. Uh, there are incredible stories of, of uh, not just uh, you know, the typical kind of uh, terrorizing of children, you know, the, the, the gang rape and the starvation and people saying that they didn't eat for days on end and had to go and pick through the garbage to find any food. But they even had a, uh, in the basement, they had, and this was validated later in a newspaper article, um, they, they had an electric chair set up in the basement where they would apply electric shocks to children if they spoke their language. And kids died as a result of that, and, and we even spoke to the, the, one of the maintenance men who used to service that, and he said, you know, he was told that uh, he'd go to jail if he ever spoke about what, he, what, what went on in that basement. That's the kind of nightmare that went on all over the country, and it's why, you know, we're talking about 50,000 or more children never came back from these, these places.
0: And, and uh, how did you uh, reach that figure of 50,000 Native children?
1: Well, that's from the government's own figures. Uh, They claim 125,000 children went through the schools for over a century, from about the 1890s right to 1996, when the last of these places closed. And they claim, according to their own records, that the 40 to 60% death rate was constant for the first half of the 20th century. There were people in the 1950s still describing how, you know, a third to half of these children were dying every year. So you know you don't get that enormous death rate unless it's it's intentional. There you know it's it's a system at work. Um, so if you take half or even a third of their number, uh, you're talking at least forty to fifty thousand children. But we know that a lot more children than that were grabbed because when the RCMP went into Indian villages, they often cleared out everybody. They grabbed all of the children, including the two and three year olds, you know the young ones. Um, and so there there had to be a lot more kids in these places than they let on. So. Yeah, I think 50,000 over a century is a pretty conservative figure, actually.
0: Wow, that's, that's huge. I mean, you know, talk about genocide and, and Holocaust. I mean, that's... But uh, you, you do mention in a lot of your work the concept of genocide and how, how that's defined in, in your work.
1: Yeah.
0: So you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the word was invented by a guy called Raphael Lemkin. Uh, he worked with the U.S. State Department during World War II, and he actually drafted the Convention on Genocide, which the United Nations adopted in 1948. And he had a really broad definition. He had three categories: uh, cultural, biological, and physical genocide. And cultural genocide is is you basically you're trying to wipe out a people, and you can do that as simply as separating boys and girls at a young age, not letting them speak their language or remember who they were or be with their families. He said, "Lincoln said that that's as much genocide." as taking people up and, and shooting them and throwing them in a ditch, or sterilizing them, you know, for, so they can't have children, which also happened all over Canada in, and America in That's Indian right. hospitals.
0: That's absolutely um, correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so what happened at the end of World War II is Canada and the United States got on the committee to draft the final version of the convention. And there's even letters that describe uh, the eventual Prime Minister of Canada, Lester Pearson, who was on the committee. He said, if we allow this definition of Lemkins to stand we would have to close our Indian boarding schools because we would be committing genocide. So they basically redrafted it to emphasize physical genocide to kind of brainwash people to think, well, when you separate children and, and batter them and, and deny them their language, that's not genocide. That's just education. Genocide is only when you kill them. And, and so it, there was kind of a um, reconceptualizing of it and, uh, you know, to, to basically cover the fact that they were trying to wipe out all sorts of nations here on Turtle Island. So, you know, we have to understand the history and and how that explains why a lot of white people today look at these schools and say, "Well, I don't think that was so bad." You know, we apologized, we gave money. What's their problem? I mean, you often hear that in the white world
0: still today. Yeah, you absolutely do. And and you say, and they say, "Well, while you keep talking about it, it's over with." And uh, you know, let's move on. Yep. Um But I do uh, also. I, I don't want to get too, um, you know, t- going in two different, too many different directions, but. Uh, at the very beginning of all of this lies the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny, yeah. which kind of plugs into how you know the the uh, majority society of the 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 Europeans or the invaders basically felt that uh, they had that right to uh, yeah. to treat and be cruel to native people and, and That's their children. Right. It,
1: it's, you know, it's, it's directly relevant. It's like saying, well, to understand what happened in the Nazi death camps, you have to read Mein Kampf. I mean, he laid out the program. To understand the, Canadi- the genocide here, which was worse than anywhere in the world, um, you have to go back to those original papal laws in the 14 and 1500s that said non-Christians do not have the right to themselves or their own land because they're, they're not human beings. They don't exist under papal law. And um, Pope Nicholas and uh, Alexander... Uh, has two laws that said any Christian nation has a right to conquer any non-Christian land. And it's blessed. It's a, it's a divine act. And, you know, so all of the stuff that's called doctrine of discovery ro- arose on a simple idea that non-Christians had diminished rights in connection. And, you know, um, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Marshall in 1832 made that statement. He said, Indians in the eastern United States do not have the right to sell their land or even control their own land because they're not Christian. They have diminished rights simply occupiers, squatters on their own land, in effect. And, you know, I mean, that's that's been clear in American and Canadian Indian law right from the beginning.
0: It's true. And, uh, you know, the other day I got a question about, you know, what's the difference between, you know, how Canada treats the tribes and how the United States treats their tribes? You know, I, I'm not sure of the minute differences. Uh, well, but
1: you I'm, know, one of the biggest differences in Canada you have something that the U.N. actually banned at the end of World War II, which is race-based legislation. It's called the Indian Act. Yes. And it makes Indians on reserve legal wards of the state. They're not citizens. They're they're in the same legal category as a child or a mentally incompetent person. You know, they, they can't uh, have any owner, uh, control over their own society when they live on reservation. So, you know, there's no um, society in the world except South Africa under apartheid that used to do that. But Canada gets away with that. Uh, in in the United States, natives, I believe, had the right to become full citizens in 1924. Yes, um, but they're still considered conquered, you know, nations. They they don't they are not considered sovereign entities by the U.S. government.
0: Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, it's uh, we're still fighting for that, but yeah, right. it's true. Um, but I guess what's in in reviewing some of the materials that I found uh, on the internet. What struck me was the uh, uh, you mentioned in I think it was the book I'm not sure uh, about the uh, end of World War II and some of the uh, Nazi scientists that uh, uh, were brought into to Canada.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and well, to, uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, Project Paperclip is really well known. It's been written about a lot. Um, uh, let me just say that if people want to read up, you know, kind of the hard evidence on this, they can go to our website, um, no com, where I posted all my research so people could access it. Um, but it, Project Paperclip after World War II was a system where the British and the Americans brought in hundreds, probably as many as 2,500 Nazi scientists and doctors through Canada, uh, a lot of them into the United States through the back door, so to speak, um, you know, we know about Bernard von Braun and those guys, but there were a lot of medical doctors, SS doctors, who went to work on the CIA's MKUltra mind-control programs. And they used a lot of the kids, not only from Indian boarding schools, but orphanages, um, milit- children of military are often targeted, um, prisoners, and, you know, all sorts of people to be used in these things. And we've had a lot of documentation in Canada of these Indian hospitals being a place where these Nazi doctors were working. There was one native woman here on the island who even described to me personally how she saw the SS tattoo on the guy's arm, who was working on her. She was held right here, above half a mile from where I'm sitting, the Nanaimo Indian Hospital. They would bring in native kids and hold them there for five or ten or fifteen years, and experiment on them, um, and you know sterilizations, drug testings, um, sensory deprivation, everything you can imagine. They were they were doing here. We tried to access these records, and the government of Canada officially sealed all of them in 1999. So we get it in bits and pieces, you know, but um, clearly they're, they're continuing. I mean, these programs, I don't believe, end. They, they carry on.
0: Yeah, so wh- where are these sealed records held?
1: Uh, partly, uh, there's a place called the National Archives in Ottawa, uh, which is uh, uh, run by the government. Uh, I found the records, and putting together my, my research, I find the records tend to be scattered all over the place, so they're hard to locate. You know, um, but the churches definitely have a lot of records as well, but they are under no obligation to release them. Um, the government set up kind of a bogus Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2008, and they have no subpoena power. They don't, they don't have the power to compel the churches to disclose anything. So, you know, they're off the hook, you know, in terms of having to disclose this stuff.
0: So how do you see this, uh, this truth and reconciliation uh, process in Canada? What's your view of it?
1: Well, you know, I think it's it's what's to be expected when a regime that's still in place has a lot of people to protect. You know, don't forget the last school didn't close until 1996. So a lot of these perpetrators are still alive. Um, they want to protect the churches and the government, and that's what they did. If you look at the mandate of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, it's right up online at trc.ca. You just go to Section 2, and it describes what the commission can and can't do. And uh, it has no power to subpoena. Um, it can't lay criminal charges. It doesn't operate like a legal body. It, when people come before it to share evidence, they can't name names of perpetrators. They can't talk about wrongdoing that happened in these schools. So, I mean, what kind of report can you get when you're not even allowed to talk about what went on? You can't name what happened. I mean, it's, it's a complete whitewash. Um, so I think it's actually a form of obstruction of justice. It's, it, it prevents people from bringing charges against the people who did these horrible crimes. And uh, that's why we've been working for a number of years to get an international investigation. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm coming to New York next week, to you know, to speak about that and try to get support for it.
0: Yeah, and uh, I understand, too, that uh, you went to Ireland and Germany?
1: Oh, I've been to Europe a, a few times. Um, part of this work to establish a tribunal means linking up with other groups in other countries and being through very similar things. Um, I've spoken in about five or six countries in Europe, in Ireland, England, Italy. We've had a number of protests outside the Vatican and um, got an enormous media coverage in Europe about this, much better than here. Um, but especially in, in a country like Ireland, where a lot of the, the crimes that people suffered there in Catholic orphanages, the Magdalene laundries where, where kids were worked to death at a young age, um, all of that stuff, sitting and hearing people's stories in Dublin and in Cork, just, you know, it... it it, it's like listening to stories from here about Native people who survived these death camps. You know, they called residential schools. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're realizing that this is a whole global phenomenon, and it's, it, it's really important to link up the survivors all over the world to just increase our, our strength and our confidence, you know.
0: So do you have uh, plans on uh, bringing this evidence and your research or whatever to, uh, to a, U- a U.N. investigative committee or...? Have you done We've that? already
1: tried that. We, we, we had our earliest tribunal into this stuff back in June of 1998 in Vancouver. We invited a UN group in, uh, a group called IRAM, and uh, they took all a lot of this evidence. And the UN never acted on it. Um, the, we found out later that the Kenyan government brought a lot of pressure to bear to just you know not not look into this. Although since then, indigenous groups around the world who have standing at the UN have raised this stuff, and in fact. You know, that's one of the reasons that Canada has been criticized more and more uh, about things happening today, you know, the loss of native land and and, uh, culture, and that all of this stuff is being raised now at the UN. So, you know, it's beginning to creep in finally. But it's being, you know, I mean, you're up against enormous (laughs) vested interests that obviously have a lot to lose if this stuff came out.
0: Yeah, and and, uh, and I understand, too, that you're trying to uh, bring criminal charges Against yeah. the, the church and uh, governments? And...
1: Well, we can, under uh, international law, it's called the International Criminal Code. It was brought in in 1998. And if any uh, country commits genocide and war crimes against humanity, which clearly occurred in these Indian boarding schools, um, then the heads of state and the heads of these churches can be put on trial by other countries. I mean, theoretically, if the Prime Minister of Canada went to a country that's a signatory of the ICC convention, he could be arrested. Charged charge with obstructing justice and concealing genocide, which clearly Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister, is doing. I mean, when he made his so-called apology, he made no reference to massive deaths, to the fact that the Church is responsible. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's all possible theoretically. The question is, is it going to happen? Is Canada... I mean, I remember when I was in, part, in Italy, we spoke to a, a committee of the Rome uh, Chamber of Deputies. We spoke to these two elderly senators, and one of them was in tears. Uh, one of the, the Native women who came with us was just telling her story of what had happened in America at this Jesuit school in, in, uh, in Omak, Washington, where she saw children being buried after being killed by these Jesuit priests. The senator was in tears, and, and finally I came up to him after, and through an interpreter, I said, well, how can we get these stories brought before, like, international courts of justice? And he said, the difficulty is is that so many countries did these crimes. You know, you're going to find a lot of resistance. Who wants to open up that Pandora's box? you know, because it indicts so many European nations. So he said it'll be a long, hard struggle, but he was one of the people who wants to help us, and in fact he, he has uh, tried to bring this before the European Parliament to have America and Canada investigated for these crimes.
0: That yeah. goes right to the very heart and core of these, of these of, you know, the governments, the United States government, Canadian, uh, yep. and, and actually it's, when you really look at it and you really open it up, it's it's a re-evaluation and relook look at, at history.
1: You know, that's exactly what it is. And, and I often say to white people who invite me to speak, I say, look, there's no point issuing apologies or talking about this stuff if we're not going to look in the mirror and say, where did this come from? You know, it's not up to us to offer other people healing and, and words. It's up to us to look at ourselves and say, what is it in our culture that caused us to do this and continue to do it all over the world? You know, in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever, where we say we have the right to go in and and take other people's lands or resources, or because they're not like us, you know that's the core idea of genocide. And um, we have to change. otherwise, I mean, I don't believe we have a future because this is this, when you look at the death rate in the native world, um, it's the same as it ever was in the residential school era. And so these things don't change. And, and you know a lot of the people I work with on the streets of Vancouver, when I tell the stories of what they go through to white audiences in the same city, yeah, a mile away from where it's happening they don't believe it they can't believe that their own society acts like that but you know it's time we woke up to that
0: and sometimes uh it might be a bit dangerous trying to wake people up to that huh. oh yeah <laughs> you know i if i were you you know i don't know but i'd be looking over my shoulder all the time
1: well you know i don't i used to worry about that more and I, I, remember people I remember once I was at a gathering actually where Louis Daniels gave me the name Eagle strong voice in Winnipeg uh, where my family are all from I mean I'm I go back my family goes back and and I have Korean and relatives because we've lived there for so long uh, but I remember when I was at that gathering Louis Daniels came up to me and he said I often wondered why you're still alive and I knew partly because it's you're a white man and your skin protects you but I see you have a lot of protection around you. I see a lot of these children and a lot of the good spirits around you helping you in this journey. So, I think that's true. I think we, you know, we were put here for for a reason, and and I'm I'll be here doing this as long as I can, um, because it's having a real impact. I can see that. I can see how people are changing more and more, especially younger people when they hear all this stuff.
0: Well, some of it is like, you know, you take it out of context. If I if I was to just open in the middle of the book you wrote, uh, Hidden History and just open that up and look at it, I would say, you yeah, know, this guy's a raving maniac. <laughs> then,
1: well, that's the first response, the denial. But then when you look at at, at statistics in their own handwriting of half these children died, the, the testimonies of people, and now even, you know, people in government and, and churches are reluctantly forced to admit that these deaths happened. I mean, it's not really about me at all. It's about the hard evidence. And, and you know, it's time that, that my culture look at this and respond.
0: And, and the fact that, it's coming from a non-Native voice, I think, makes it, you know, stronger.
1: Exactly, and that's why they have to discredit it. I mean, I would, if I was Native, I, I wouldn't be alive uh, right now. I mean, all they can do with, I was an insider in the church, and so somebody like that, you, you, you usually just use a strategy of discreditation. Say, well, the guy's crazy, don't listen to him. Um, those are the kinds of things put out there about me, but I mean, it's it's really irrelevant. The, the real issue is what happened. I mean, they can't deny it anymore.
0: Exactly. Um, and you know, it took me a while. I, I you know was reading your books, your book, and um, some of the 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 referrals that you have, your references, and going through that, and I thought, oh, this is so much bigger than what you're actually writing about.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, it is, yeah.
0: And. Uh, so i'm I'm not even going to go there <laughs> uh, well i
1: I should just mention again um, if people want to check out on hidden longer dot com there's also a website we have um, itccs dot org that's the international tribunal that I'm working with and uh, you can see you know these stories from all over the world i mean it's it's really a situation, a bigger issue of like how these churches are laws under themselves and the, and they get to in this way. That's one of the things I'll be talking about in New York. I'm going to be meeting with survivors of church abuse there, and one of the things they keep saying all the time is, you know, the church, we can't get justice. The church is so well protected, and literally um, these priests get away with killing and, and raping children, and now and then one is brought to trial, but by and large they're protected, and um, there's even a, a policy in the Catholic Church that says when priests discover sexual abuse in their parish they're not to tell the police they're to keep it quiet or they'll face excommunication. I mean can you imagine any organization doing that and yet the church gets away with it so we've got to look at how to change that I mean institutionally you know
0: so when you when you look at this overall, do you have do you have like a a solution to this stuff? I mean you you you, you research it. You recognize it, you shine a light on it, and then what do you do?
1: Well, that's that's a good question. I struggle with that a lot. I mean, you can only take this so far and you face the reality that the institutions and the people that did this are still in power. And the only people in history who ever held accountable for the crimes are the ones who lose a war. And the white, my people didn't lose the war. We won it here. You know, you know, the oldest war in history against indigenous people. We won it. And so we can absolve ourselves, we can pat ourselves on the back, we can do anything, but I don't call that justice. And I think the only way there's ever going to be justice is if somehow the tables are turned. And either through other countries indicting Canada and the U.S. or right within our societies themselves, people simply take back what was taken from them. I mean, one of the things that's happening, one of the nations I was adopted into, the Squamish Nation on the west coast of Canada, Chief Capilano... Um, Issued an eviction order to all of the churches in his, er- in his territory, and this takes in the whole city of Vancouver, the Catholic, the Anglican, and the United churches. He said, "Get off our land because you've done these crimes. You won't even identify where these children are buried, and return them, so we can give them a proper burial. So it's time you left." Well, he issued that, and people have done things like occupy the churches. and In one case, is, uh, in one case, that one local Catholic priest even announced that he was. Taking his parish out and establishing their own, he didn't want to be associated with with the church that did this. So he set up his own independent parish. I mean, those kinds of things, I think, from the grassroots, are what you know evoke change in the long run. But it's a long, slow process, and um, you know, it's difficult.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and and also, are are you <clears throat> maybe looking for some of these uh, uh, buried children?
1: That's been a real focus over the last couple of years. Uh, one of the the projects I'm working on, Uh, last April I was invited by nine Mohawk elders in southern Ontario, uh, the Ongwahanwe people, to come and uh, survey the oldest Indian boarding school in Canada, it's in Brantford, Ontario, set up by the Church of England. And we've already, through ground penetrating radar radar surveys and some test digs, we've already found evidence of, of definite mass graves. Uh, in that area, and we actually, uh, in the spring, there's uh, an American archaeologist who's coming up to survey the grounds, and we, um, the Mohawks have commissioned us to start a, a professional dig whereby the children's remains can be brought home, you know, and given proper respect, uh, and there can be analysis done to see the cause of death and that. So that kind of hard evidence is going to be very important. Um, the Mohawks have also declared the whole area under their jurisdiction, so they've told the police, you know, this is Mohawk territory traditionally, you're not allowed on it. And that's an, an amazing step of, of sovereignty, where people say, well, if we're going to really take back our land and our identity, we have to start with the children, the ones who were taken from us. And that's really what a lot of the elders there are now talking like. So I see that spreading across Canada, and I think eventually the same thing will will have to happen in the States.
0: Well, you know, I had a conversation the other day with uh, Isabel Knockwood, yeah. uh, uh, you know, author of uh, Out of the Depth, and uh, she was talking to me about how a couple of uh, government, I don't know if they were agents or representatives of the government, uh, stopped by to talk to her about if there were any children buried that she knew of near the, the uh, Shubanagini school. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said that, yeah, they, she knew that there was a graveyard you know, near there. But then uh, I guess people were saying that, <clears throat> in this graveyard, uh, that, that the school itself was built on uh, a, uh, a battle site where there's lots of uh, bones and, and dead bodies anyway. Right. So is, is that they
1: te- a... They, yeah, they tended to do that. They would, um, like at the Brantford School, we found in some of the bones we've already uh, found are mixed in often with pig, sheep and pig bones um we found in the first test dig now the, the elders were there they ac- actually the elders turned the ground um, you know the, so they, they were the ones who initiated the dig and and they were the ones who first brought up these bones but um, they what we found mixed in among all these animal and human pro- possible human remains they haven't been positively identified yet but um, mixed among them were the these all these white and wooden buttons. And one of the survivors of the school said, yeah, those we used to wear those on our uniforms back in the 1950s. So, um, you know, you, you have these these clues that there definitely were something in there. Um, but they would often um, incinerate the bodies as well in the school furnaces, so would have to do analysis of the ash. You can analyze um, from ash uh, actually DNA traces, and teeth and, and certain bones don't burn up. Uh, very easily. So yeah, I And mean, even in those situations, there'd still be the evidence left.
0: You know? So you have uh, forensic experts on your team as well?
1: We do, yeah. Uh, we actually uh, initially um, consulted people in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, but then uh, some of the native archaeologists in New York uh, who we work with actually recommended that they um, be the ones who kind of spearhead this because they didn't have full confidence that the Smithsonian was going to you know, be completely neutral on the whole on the whole thing. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, we're we're hoping that native people and will provide the expertise themselves. You know, to do this.
0: So forensically, you can tell whether this the the bones belong to a native or or if it was a, ch- a child's bone or.
1: Yeah, there's there's ways of identifying if it's human right away, and also you do DNA matching. So for example, a family member, let's say living in Brantford, uh, they would have their tongue swabbed or blood sample. And then from their DNA, they can match to see if any of those bones resemble layers kind of on a DNA level. Um, So yeah, all of that is possible. It's just, you know, they do this all over the world. The question is getting the political will, you know, and the courage to do it in North America. You can imagine, I mean, to open up this whole thing, it's it's our whole hidden history here on the continent. And it's going to have enormous repercussions. So that's why there's a lot of pressure to bear not to do this at all.
0: So are you, are you doing it in a number of uh, sites in, in Canada right now? Or?
1: It, it started like we, the, the first thing is we, we have to get the, the proper protocol and working with, you know, be invited in and have the elders talk about it. And they've got to be united on this because it's, it's easy to, um, you know, th- this evokes a lot of feelings of people who survive these places there's a lot of post-traumatic reactions. There's a lot of trauma. Most people don't want to talk about this stuff. So it's hard to get unity often, to have a whole community like the Mohawks have done, to say, no, we want this done. So it's kind of a long preamble we have to do prior to the actual dig and to the investigation. But that's beginning, yeah, in on the prairies, uh, on the West Coast, and also in the Eastern Territories. This whole thing has begun.
0: So in the meantime, you're you're also interviewing some of the residential uh, Native people who attended these schools?
1: Oh, that's most of the work that I do uh, for the last 15 years on the ground, just taking people's testimonies, getting the permission that, you know, uh, that these can be shared publicly. Um, that's a lot of what's in Um, those stories. And I'm in the eastern states because I'm working out with the Mohawks. They have relatives, of course, all through the eastern territory. And I meet Mohawks, like, one of the reasons I'm, I'll be in New York is because I'll be uh, talking to some of the people there who have been struggling to get, you know, the same thing started in their territory. So, um, yeah, it's 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 begun. I mean, compared to five or ten years ago, we've made real strides.
0: So do you plan on, you know, getting to uh, Nova Scotia, that area, New Brunswick?
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, in April, late April, after... Um, um, go to New York next week. I'll be in, um, at the end of April, I'm coming back, and I'll, I have plans to actually uh, see people like Isabel and others who I've worked with in Nova Scotia about the Shubenacadie School, but also, um, it's funny, you know, the stories you hear, um, I was on the bus the other day and a woman started talking, she was a Delaware Indian, and she said, yeah, we were forced out of our territory and we lived among the Mohawks, but we have all sorts of stories of children who disappeared in these places, so, um, it's kind of a full-time job, and that's that's what I'll be doing. So yeah, at the end of April, on my way back to Europe, I'll be uh, doing more of an East Coast trip,
0: and I'll bet that uh, there's lots of those uh, stories too in the the, the plains and the in the you know the western uh, tribes of the of the country of, of the United States.
1: Oh, it's all over. As a matter of fact, in in the states, I'm not sure how well known this is, but. Um, The first lawsuit was won against the Jesuits just last year. It was a native law firm called the Tamaki Law Firm in Washington State, and uh, they successfully sued the Jesuits for boarding schools they ran in in South Dakota. The problem is that it was like a $168 million settlement, but the church didn't pay most of that. You know, the insurance company did. And along with that money went a gag order on the survivors, and they were indemnified. The, The church as a whole wasn't touched. There were some individual priests that were named.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: um, you know, it, it was the same old case of, of the church as an institution being protected in return for a little bit of money. And um, so I'm, at least the process has started in the States, and, and I hope more of those lawsuits begin, because at least the public record will begin to reflect these stories, you know, the truth of what happened.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that uh, also in the States, the uh, in, in the East Coast anyway, residential schools they weren't they weren't used all that much in the east right um but there was not the residential schools but it was called the child welfare or foster care system right. which basically did the same thing same it result did, you're
1: right yeah very much and still today you know when when so more and more native kids are taken out of their homes all the time it's a constantly increasing phenomena in canada at least and um uh, when you do that, when you take a native child out of their home and their culture, you're committing genocide according to the internationally accepted definition because you're wiping out that, that person's culture, and that's the same as exterminating them. And that goes on today in the child welfare system. Um, we More and more I get requests to come and speak about how the level of abuse and trauma going on right in the government system you know, of so-called child welfare, I mean, it's it's ongoing. So. More and more, kind of, my work is being tipped into in that direction as well to show how this is kind of an ongoing crime.
0: You know, it's 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 tough enough for people to believe, actually, get a grasp on what happened in the past. Right. But then for them to realize that hey, this is going on today, in a, yep. in a the same way, but in a different under a different label. Um, that's it. That's tough. Yeah,
1: oh, I know. I mean, it's always hard to. To look at crimes in your own backyard today, I mean, that's, that's uh, a lot more risky than if you're talking about, you know.
0: Yeah, I t- mean, it's easy for us to say, oh, look at what Canada did, you know. Yeah. But when it comes to the United States, well, you know, <laughs> we're, we're the human rights mecca, so to speak. And it's, and it's tough for us to realize that, hey, you know, we're not.
1: Yeah, well, that's always hard for anybody to do, but uh, it's easier when the evidence is out there and when the eyewitnesses are still alive talking. It's just a matter of getting a big enough forum, and, and unfortunately the so-called mainstream media just totally blacked the story and me right out. And uh, even when there's eyewitnesses in that, uh, we had eyewitnesses to sterilization programs right here on Vancouver Island, and none of the major media would even sit down and talk and interview with these, uh, these eyewitnesses who in the 1960s were sterilized by this Dr. Goodbrand, who was getting Indian Affairs money from the government, $300 for every Indian woman he sterilized, especially if they wouldn't live on reservation. In other words, if they were asserting their autonomy and their, you know, their their um, Indianness, if you like, uh, and weren't assimilating, they were targeted for sterilization. Well, if that isn't a definition of trying to wipe out a people, what is? And yet, they wouldn't even interview them. I uh, went to the Globe and Mail, the largest newspaper in Canada, and they wouldn't even sit down and talk to these people. So that shows you what we're up against, you
0: know. Yeah, absolutely. So when you go to New York, um, what's your, uh, you, you told me you had a an itinerary or whatever there. And, mm-hmm.
1: uh, well, I, I arrived there, I'm going actually to uh, the Pequot uh, Indian Museum in Connecticut. Uh, we're showing our film on Repent on Saturday, February 25th. And uh, after that, the next day, on Sunday, the 26th, I'm going to New York City right till March 2nd. And during the week, I'm meeting um, survivors groups in New York, survivors of church abuse. I'm giving a number of public talks. And the big thing is on, on Thursday, March 1st at 12 noon, we're holding a press conference and public vigil outside the Canadian consulate on the Avenue of the Americans. And then we're walking over to St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is just down the road. And uh, we're going to be rallying there with survivors of church abuse, and we're going to be making statements about, you know, basically two-headed issue of the genocide in Canada and how this is also a phenomenon in the, in the States and trying to rally, you know, the interest of, of the New York public and the media and that on this stuff. Because, you know, this is one of the levers that we hope to use, uh, the kind of moral pressure we, we hope to bring uh, to bear on Canada and, and the Vatican. I mean, the, ultimately we're talking about the Vatican and the Church, the Crown of England. In Canada, are the ones responsible for a lot of these crimes, and, and similarly in the U.S.
0: So, what kind of response do you get from, say, England?
1: Well, <laughs> I had a very real response last May 29th when they barred me from re-entering their country. <laughs> That's pretty real, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been speaking in England. You know, um, the Crown of England, of course, is the one who authorized a lot of these all of these schools, really, in Canada, and we issued a, a letter to Queen Elizabeth in 2008, asking her, as we did the Pope, uh, Pope Ratzinger, uh, we asked them both to simply identify the grave sites where these children died so that they can be you know, given a proper burial. We didn't hear back anything uh, from them, of course, but um, we, you know, we've had um, a lot of interest on the ground, and even in the media in England, for these things. But I was supposed to address a rally in Trafalgar Square last June on child trafficking and child abuse, and just when I was coming back into the country to do that, they, they just denied me entry. They didn't really give a reason. They just uh, looked at their computer screen and said, nope, you can't come in. So, oh,
0: Well, so you haven't tried again, huh?
1: Well, I, I intend to go back in May. In fact, I've got a, a travel visa this time, and it'll be a lot harder. We even have a member of parliament there who, who plans to meet me at the airport and document what happens if I am bar, barred entry, because they've given no cause whatsoever. And, um, you know, it's, we'll see what happens. But I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that, yeah, they, they'll look pretty bad if they keep just doing that kind of thing, I think. You,
0: uh, you don't foresee any issues entering uh, the United States, do you?
1: No, no, there's never been a problem uh, coming into the States. Um,
0: Not yet. No. So. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, so I did want to ask you, uh, the 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 video or the film that you did, Unrepentant, was that your first one?
1: Yes, yeah, the first documentary um, we've done really on this whole thing, and, and uh, you can see it online. We've had over half a million hits. Um, we deliberately posted it. No, I don't copyright any of my work. We just posted as public knowledge and information everywhere, and um, so it was it was a, a real labor of love and, and pain, you know. But it finally uh, w- we were impressed how. Quickly, it got picked up uh, all over the Aboriginal world. I mean, people talk about it and make copies of it all the time. And and it's definitely one of the things that prompted the government's apology because a couple of months before the apology, a, a native member of Parliament called Gary Morasti had seen our film. And that same week, he got up in Parliament and asked a simple question, like, when are these children going to be brought home and, and acknowledged? And that's what caused the whole truth and reconciliation statement and, and all of that. I mean, it came very soon after that, so... I think it shows people the power of, you know, just taking a camera and documenting it and getting it up on, on YouTube or wherever. And um, that has a, it, you know, it's kind of like a tsunami
0: <laughs> effect. Well, yeah, because a lot of these interviews that you did, that was, they were very powerful. And, yeah. you know, you could tell by just watching the people as they, as they talked that, you know, they, they were really deeply wounded by their experiences.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, and unfortunately, a number of the people who are in the film have died since then. Um, three of the people in our network, Aboriginal people, have died very recently. One of them beaten so badly by three Vancouver police that he died uh, soon after. I mean, the, the Native people who work with us, sometimes they're targeted, and um, that's the kind of thing that happens. So um, that's one of the reasons I continue to say, well, this is like an ongoing story, these... these um, Crimes are real today, you know.
0: So you, you did another video, right, after, the, after Unrepentant?
1: Well, somebody did kind of a, they tried a, a script in a, a film called The Diary, which was loosely based on my story. Uh, that never got much circulation, and there's been various attempts to, to get this, um, treatments written to do some kind of feature film in Hollywood about this stuff. But the only other thing, there hasn't been another film. We're working on a, a second documentary now, um, kind of looking at, at what the genocide looks like today and kind of the whole international nature of it. Um, we're working on that, but, I mean, it, it, it's like the same old story. There's just uh, so much time in the day and so many people working on this, and so it's a thing I'd like very much to be doing.
0: So it seems to me that it's a huge body of work to be working yeah. on You know, an international story like that. So you also, there's another, you did you did a book. You did the Hidden No Longer.
1: There's Hidden No Longer, uh, Genocide in Canada, Past and Present. Now that's posted up online, hiddennolonger.com. But I'll have hard copies with me when I come. Um, there, there's another book that was um, more of a kind of personal interest story I wrote. It's called Unrepentant, Disrobing the Emperor. Yeah. And you can get that online on amazon.com. Um, you know, it's it's out there kind of in the more mainstream Plus then there's the film on So those three works really are kind of what I take with me whenever I go and speak.
0: The uh, disrobing the emperor. What's that?
1: What's that about? It's really um, kind of what happened to me, uh, but also how this whole story unfolded since 1995 when I got fired and this whole thing began. Um, and it's, Kind of written from the point of view of I go back and forth between the first and third person about a description of what's going on, but also my own personal experience of losing my family, you know kind of the whole culture shock, which is my way of putting it uh, as I was learning about the real nature of my society and and what I used to be in the church I used to be in um so it's really kind of that personal story of how somebody changes somebody in the white society wakes up to what they're part of and and um yeah, so it's. I think it's uh, very compelling. I mean, if if I was just looking at this as a third person, I'd say this is a very compelling story, and uh, it's an encouragement. I mean, I often say to people, like, if one guy working on his own can cause all this, just think of, you know, a hundred or a thousand of us. It shows you the power of, of persistence, I think. I, I guess that's what I'm left with at the end of the day.
0: Well, you know, I, I kind of think that one person can make a difference, and, and they can change yeah. change the world.
1: I've learned that, yeah.
0: Probably at a very high cost.
1: Well, it has been. And, you know, it's funny, the, the strength you find in yourself when you when you work with us. Um, I thought at some points in my life, a dozen years ago, I thought my life was over. I mean, I was, I couldn't see my kids. I was struggling. I was impoverished and blacklisted. And it was just a, a nightmare. But we came through it. Like, my daughters are 23 and 19 now. They're both in university. We we get along wonderfully. They're beginning to learn about a lot of this stuff now and and you know, having to make kind of change uh, changes in the way they've they've looked at things. And But what I found with my kids is that as I, I just try to maintain as much contact as I could and, and love them unconditionally and try to be as truthful as I could uh, with them about everything. So that's paid off. And, I mean, I just, I think um, love and truth, they have a, an enormous power. I believe in them more strongly now than I think I did before when it was more abstract to me, you know, before any of those.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I told you I was talking to Isabel, and I, I asked her, you know, if, if you could ask or talk to Kevin and ask him any, anything, what, what would that be? And she said, well, I've always wondered why a white man would take on such a burden at the cost of, of, of his own well-being. Why would he do that? That's a question to you.
1: Well, because it was about these children. I mean, I couldn't turn my back when I realized what had happened to so many innocent children. And you don't have to be Native to, to be concerned about this. This is, you know, it's kind of like you don't have to be Jewish to care about the Nazi Holocaust. I mean, primarily because my people did this. It was done in my name, and I didn't want to be associated with it. I didn't want to be part of a culture that assumed that I was just to go along and keep silent about something done so horrible. And it was the right thing to do, and it's helped save lives. And I couldn't have lived with myself. if I hadn't have taken a stand on this. So I, it's really that simple for me, and I, I don't.
0: Mm. But I think, you know, it's more than for you just taking a stand. I mean, you've, <laughs> you've like, taken a leadership role in this and uh, really, you know, dove into this full force.
1: Yeah. Well, um... you know, to tell you the truth, in many ways I didn't have an option. I mean, a lot, I did try to retrain uh, and get a Ph.D. That was blocked. Uh, I tried to get work, you know, the whole blacklisting thing uh, came in and I couldn't couldn't do that. A lot of doors were closed to me. And at first I thought, well, kind of de facto, I've got to keep working on this. This is the one area I can still have an impact on things. But then I realized after a while, no, this is, you know, a path is put in front of me for a reason. And I was always preaching that to people from the pulpit, that, you know, when, when people are placed in front of you, when, when you're given a purpose in life, you can't ignore it when you feel it's the right thing and that. So I... In a way, it's because a lot of these doors were closed and I became like um, outcast in my own culture that, uh, you know, I was led that way to some degree. So it wasn't, yeah, you're right, it wasn't just personal choice, it was circumstances as well.
0: Yeah, and it was, I think sometimes we're put here to do a specific job Mm -hmm. and to do a special work. And I think that's your calling to do this special work. It's not easy, for sure we got about, oh, I don't know, three or four more minutes.
1: Okay. Well, uh, maybe uh, I'll just share some contact info for people. Oh, sure. You can reach me at um, hiddenfromhistory1, like the number one, hiddenfromhistory1 at gmail.com. And our websites, again, are hiddennolonger.com and itccs.org. Just a kind of a final message I found with people that, you know, we're raised in often to think we don't have the power to do anything, that we tend to look to other people you know, to do that for us. And i found that each one of us needs to take a stand on this, because it's not just about the children, but it's about the attack on Mother Earth, it's attack on our basic rights. If we allow these institutions to do it to one group, they can do it to anybody. And so I think I often say to people, this is not just an issue, this is about our future, the future of our children and our, our life here on the planet. So I just urge people to realize that you can make a difference and to just be inspired by my example.
0: Absolutely. And uh, we thank you for all the hard work and uh, personal sacrifice that you've made to bring this forward.
1: Well, thanks. And thanks for having Um, me on, uh, Don. It really means a lot. Alternative media is the only route we have to get this out, so it means a lot to be on your show.
0: All right, Kevin, thank you. Before we end the show today, I'd like to say a word about Kevin Annet's book, Uh, Hidden No Longer, Genocide in Canada, Past and Present. I'd like to read the author's note for that book, and it goes as follows. The stories, documentation, and other evidence in this book are based in part on the living testimonies of nearly 300 survivors of 38 separate Indian residential or hospitals across Canada, these accounts were offered freely and unconditionally in open public forums or in private interviews between December and 1995 and July of 2010. Full permission to quote and reprint these accounts was obtained from every contributor in either writing or on video. This evidence is held in trust by the International Tribunal into Crimes of Church and State through the common consent of the survivors themselves. All documents, letters, photos, and other evidence were obtained from public records of the Department of Indian Affairs held in the microfilm section of the Cornell Library, University of British Columbia, from newspaper archives, and from the public internet or private collectors. I wish to thank and honor all of the survivors of Indian residential schools for their courage and willingness to speak out by which the world has learned about the genocide inflicted upon them, their nations, and the land. And may we equally honor and acknowledge the untold tens of thousands of children who suffered and died in the Christian death camps and who still await recognition so that their memory may never fade and their murderers may one day face justice. I would also like to add a quote that I think is appropriate. and It's from Voltaire, and he says... To the living we owe respect, but to the dead we owe only the truth. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you have been listening to Abenaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalker. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and Joel Mann of WERU and tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.